Welcome to episode 222 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Dr. Ellen Joan Nelson. Ellen did not serve in the U.S. military and instead she served in the New Zealand Army and we connected at a conference that was virtual but based out of Australia and it was really interesting to hear Ellen speak at the conference, and I really wanted to have her on as a podcast guest, not only to talk about her experience in the New Zealand Army, but also to talk about the work she's doing today, where your hours don't determine your pay. Instead, it's the output of work that you do, and it was a really fun conversation to talk about how her transition out of the military led to the work that she's doing today. So I really hope you enjoy this interview, so let's get started. Welcome to the show, Ellen. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks, Amanda. I'm excited to be here, too. We figured out time zone differences. I'm in California, you're in New Zealand, and I'm just really excited to get this interview started and just to hear a different story from a country that we haven't talked to before about what it's like to be in the military. That sounds awesome. (laughs) So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? So when I was about nine or 10 years old, there was a recruiting advertisement uh, for the New Zealand army. And it was a play on the words army and arm me. And it said things like arm me with friends, arm me with education, arm me with experience. And then it ended with army with the future. And I just remember as a little kid thinking, wow, the army's got everything. There's adventure, there's friendships, there's education, there's training. That's me. And so, yeah, as a little girl, I was, that was it. I spent the rest of my school years looking forward to joining the army. And that's what I did. (laughs) So when you graduated, I don't know if you guys call it high school, but when you graduated like 12th grade, did you go to college or did you join the army right away? What was that process like? So it was a pretty great scheme. I so yeah finished uh, high school and then went into uh, joined the army and they uh, basically paid for my university education. And it was I was also very lucky, Amanda. So I'm New Zealand Army, but I actually did a scholarship exchange to the Australian Defence Force Academy. So the first four years of my career was actually um, basically on exchange in Australia. So I did three years of a university degree alongside my military training and then a final fourth year of just uh, military officer training in Australia. That's a really cool experience. Sometimes the Air Force Academy in the United States will like transfer for a year someone to like the Naval Academy but I don't know if they do like a whole switch but it sounds like kind of a similar type of experience but not exactly the same. Yeah it was pretty cool. It was because you know, obviously Australia and New Zealand have a very close relationship. And so every year, uh, or at that time anyway, they would send two New Zealanders or Kiwis, we refer to ourselves as, to Australia. And two Aussies would come to New Zealand. And it was amazing, Amanda. I had so much fun over there. <laughs> That's really cool. So what was that experience like besides like being in a different country and a different culture? Was it challenging I know West Point and the military academies in the United States are really rigid and hard. So what was that experience like? So, I mean, yes, it was hard. It was challenging. 
that's, I guess, what I was expecting. And it was, you know, you get challenged certainly physically in terms of some of the physical things that you have to do. You get challenged you know, mentally, academically. It's all about sort of understanding how you can stretch yourself and push yourself beyond your limits. So, so yes, it was hard, but honestly, it was fun. I loved it so much. So, you know, you just got to learn all these exciting things. You had kind of fun adventures. There was all these cool people that you got to work with. You got to learn and, yeah, I, I honestly, Amanda, I loved my time. I really did. <laughs> That's great to hear. And then when you came back to New Zealand and you integrated into the military, were there any, like, cultural differences of, like, things that you had learned in Australia that weren't the same as New Zealand? Or was that not something that you experienced? Not really. I mean, Australia and New Zealand, I mean, we're not the same country. We do have differences. But our military training is, is pretty similar. And, you know, obviously I was already a New Zealander, so I was just, you know, coming home. The only thing was, I suppose – in the military, as you know, like the friendships you make with the people you do your initial training with is really long lasting. So my, probably some of my closest friends in the military are actually from Australia, because that's where I spent, you know, that kind of period where you come from a child and become an adult was with my Australian cohort. So maybe the only challenge was when I came back to New Zealand, I didn't actually have any friends in my own military. So that was just, but I'm pretty social and I'm I make people be my friends. So it wasn't too bad, but it was just, yeah, to start with, it was just about actually getting to know people in my own army and, and making friends with them. Yeah, that makes sense. And we met at a conference in Australia and I originally thought you were in the Australian military because that, I guess I wasn't paying attention when they did the bios or I just, um, and so, yeah. And so that makes sense, like why you were there and like how I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And now the backstory, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I've still, you know, got a really um, kind of close relationship or, you know, Australia is kind of close to my heart because that was where I you know, effectively kind of grew up, I suppose, in terms of doing my military training. So what year was it when you graduated and I would say commissioned into the military yeah, that's basically, so I joined in 2003 and then it was 2006 was when I uh, graduated and commissioned as an officer. And then I served for, it was 10 years in total. So I left the army in 2013. So what was your job when you commissioned? So I was an engineer officer and I know we're probably all biased about the jobs that we do, but I felt that I was like in such a lucky position. So the the soldiers that I was responsible for, um, I so I was the construction troop commander, and that meant uh, my soldiers were carpenters, electricians, and plumbers. And Amanda, it was so much fun. We got to do all these amazing construction projects, both around New Zealand, but also a whole lot around the world, uh, including a lot in the Pacific Islands. Just basically as the troop commander, my job was, of course, to sort of manage the projects and lead and grow and develop my soldiers. But it was so neat. I got to learn a whole lot from them as well because they were qualified tradespeople and I got to yeah learn from them. So that was my main job. Uh, the final posting before I left the military was actually in recruiting. Uh, and specifically, I was in what was called lateral recruiting, where we would bring people from overseas military. So would you believe, Amanda, I actually uh, 
recruited a lot of people that transferred from the British military, uh, as well as Australia, Canada, and the US. Wow, I didn't even know that was in existence. That's crazy. Oddly enough, my job was civil engineering, which sounds very similar to the type of engineering you were doing. So, And it is. It's a lot of fun. We had like electricians and structures, and then we got to go out with them, and they got to teach us what they did, and we were always building stuff on the base, and yeah. That's super cool. And to be fair, Amanda, you said you're a civil engineer, so you're, you really are a proper engineer. I was a military engineer, which is not... Certainly not the same uh, caliber as a civil engineer, but that's really cool. Yeah, that's what I got my degree in. I don't really use it anymore. Now now I have a podcast and I write, but I like math, but the engineering, it was like doing engineering in the military was like so hands-on and so exciting. And then to think about working in an office job, doing like AutoCAD plans, I was like, that doesn't sound like fun anymore so the military kind of ruined me (laughs) (laughs) so you said you did a lot of projects not only in New Zealand but around the world so where were some of the places that you got to go so I guess I mean a lot of travel I was so my 10 years in the army I spent more than seven of those 10 years outside of New Zealand which was pretty great and to be fair a lot of that obviously was Australia that's where I did my training I did an exchange for about six months in the UK, which was really neat. But my main uh, times where I did, uh, ran construction projects overseas, there were quite a few in the Pacific Islands. So spent time in Niue, uh, in the Cook Islands, in Tuvalu, Afghanistan. So I did seven months in Afghanistan. And a pretty cool one, Amanda, is I actually did, uh, did two months in Antarctica. And we were actually based at the American base, McMurdo Station doing uh, construction projects uh, around McMurdo Station. So that was a pretty amazing experience being in the Antarctica. Yeah, that sounds that sounds cold. <laughs> uh, yeah, it definitely was. <laughs> Where were you in Afghanistan and when were you there? So the New Zealand uh, contingents of the PRT, Provincial Reconstruction Team, uh, New Zealand, we were based in Bamian Province, And so I was there for seven months between 2010 and 2011. Uh, And once again, there were Americans stationed at our Kiwi base as well. So um, I just mentioned that because it was neat throughout my career. Obviously, Australian is where I spent a lot of time, but I got to work with British and American troops as well, which was really cool. Yeah, and you mentioned a PRT, and I know what a PRT is because that was what my deployment to Afghanistan was. So it's like crazy all the commonalities between your story and mine and I was there in 2010 so I was there from February to October of 2010 I was in Kapisa just north of Kabul oh wow we would have been there because I think I arrived in I think it was maybe the start of October of 2010 so we might have like just had a crossover yeah that's crazy Two countries, and then there's all these commonalities, which is kind of crazy. If you were on a PRT, did that mean that you were off the base and meeting out with the people and doing convoys in Afghanistan? Yeah, it was. So there were kind of two parts to my role. So I was the engineer officer, and on one part, our team, we were responsible for basically facilities maintenance of all the New Zealand bases around the province. So there was kind of the main Kiwi base, 
but then I think there was four or five satellite bases around the province. So that was sort of one part. But the way more exciting bit, Amanda, was running construction projects in the community. So I spent a lot of time, uh, yeah, on patrols with my engineer team. Uh, We'd often have infantry come along with us as well, but we would meet uh, a lot of local construction contractors and sort of manage their construction projects. And so we did, some of them included some work at an orphanage. Uh, We did some roading repairs. There was some work at a school, a police station. It was it was really neat. It was really rewarding work. I imagine you probably had some similar experiences. Yeah, we did a lot of schools and a few hospital repairs and some government buildings and a lot of roads. It was challenging, but there was a lot of rewarding parts of it. It was really just a unique experience to get to go and like actually see the country and meet the people. And I mean, the kids were always around. They were my favorite part. Just... They, they were so smart and like they knew English so well. One of the kids was like better than our translator. We're like, no, translator, you can take a break. He's got it. And so it was it was really fun to get to talk to the kids and spend time with them and learn about their perspective of what their life was like. Yeah, I, I totally agree that meeting with the locals was kind of the highlight of my trip, that those relationships um with people and learning about Afghanistan was yeah definitely the one of the most amazing parts so when you got to 10 years you were you decided to get out of the military what led you to make that decision so I yeah after 10 years I had kind of I guess achieved what my goals were so I really wanted to deploy and I had done that Uh, I really wanted to lead soldiers and I had done that but I wasn't that interested in some of the roles kind of Uh, ahead of me. So I didn't really have great ambitions to progress further. The other thing is at that point, I was 28 when I left. And so during my twenties, I was, I didn't have children. I, I mean, I had some boyfriends, but I, you know, kind of single and that was fun. You could go anywhere at the drop of a hat. And I liked the fact that I was always on the go, but I knew that I wanted to have a family and uh, for me anyway, I just wanted more stability uh, in my life. And so that was sort of one of the other reasons why I thought, yep, I've, I've kind of had my event- adventures. I've achieved what I wanted to. And now I'd like something a bit more stable uh, and have a little bit more control over my locations and timings. Um, and I, I like having control over my time, which, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so. Yes, for sure. When you left the military, it sounds like you had like accomplished what you wanted and you were ready for something new. But did you face any challenges in leaving the military life for the civilian one? Not really. I had a pretty good transition and I I know that that's not the case uh, for everybody. But what was quite good, the first thing was when I decided that I was going to leave, it was about a year in advance of doing so. And I wanted to upskill so I did my I did an MBA a master's of business administration or sorry an executive MBA sort of as I was leaving because I thought that would be good for my CV and uh, kind of increase my chances of getting a decent job outside but my very final posting uh, as I mentioned was at recruiting now that was quite a great transition because I was working first of all it wasn't just army anymore it was uh, navy and air force as well and there was also a lot of civilian staff in my team and so it was sort of a bit of a bit of a taste of the corporate world, I guess. It was, you know, not like a typical military unit. So I found that that was quite a useful, I guess, bridge out of the military. I sort of had that 
sort of civilian corporate experience and then yeah went into my next job uh, at a logistics organization and and really loved it so yeah no my my transition was good I was I was lucky yeah I've heard like when people have something that like kind of helps bridge the gap into it like because you need like that time where you go from like military to civilian and if you do it just all at once it's kind of hard but when I've talked to people in the military in the United States who've worked as like the reserves and then they do that like one week in a month and then they have a civilian job when they leave the military it's not as hard because they've already been doing the civilian thing and so that makes a lot of sense so you had a smooth transition and you really liked your job but you're not doing that job today so can you tell us what happened between when you left and where you're at today yeah, sure. So a little bit of a journey. So I, I mentioned that I'd done my MBA and I, uh, this I'm not saying this to, to brag, but I got a really good grade in my final dissertation or kind of the mini thesis. And I got lulled into this sort of false sense of security, Amanda. I thought, oh, well, I did that. Okay. Maybe I could do a PhD. It can't be that hard. I was wrong. It was hard. And so I did this PhD while I was working. So I, I worked at a logistics company for two years. And then from there worked as a business consultant because my, so my undergraduate degree was economics and business. I'd then done an MBA. So business was sort of my thing. And I was working for New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, which was, it's basically a New Zealand organization set up to help exporters. So I'm assuming there's probably an equivalent in America. And so I was yeah, working as a business consultant, helping New Zealand exporters, and at the same time doing my PhD. And I thought about, well, what's a good topic to kind of get me this qualification that I wanted. And I'm really interested in leadership and how we can get more out of people. And, you know, obviously I had a leadership experience in the military and thought, okay, well, I'm going to narrow it down to leadership experiences of women for the PhD. And then I did my case study specifically on women leaders in the military, uh, being the New Zealand Army as the case study. And what happened, Amanda, I did this research and I interviewed all these other women who had been in the military. And they were really open questions about what were your experiences like? How did you experience leadership? And the woman that I interviewed, uh, just as I did, talked about lots of positive things. So I'm always really clear to say that up front, they had lots of great experiences, you know, the travel, the friendships, the opportunities, all the exciting stuff. But there was this recurring kind of but, Amanda, where there were these negative gender-related challenges that were coming out in these conversations. And it also caused me to reflect a little bit on my own experiences. And while I loved my time in the army, I really did. And I, you know, I promote it as a great career. I kind of realized that perhaps not everything had been as sunshine and rainbows as I had sort of tricked myself into believing. And so I found myself, this is sort of three-ish years ago now, in this a little bit of a miserable state. I was working at New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, and then now I'd gathered all this data which revealed that the military wasn't treating women as well as it should, and that kind of annoyed me, to be blunt about it. And so I ended up uh, approaching the chief of the New Zealand Army and said, hey, uh, you know, chief, you are publicly stating that you want to increase your representation of women, but have not been really making any success or traction in that over the last two decades. I think my research findings could help. You know, if you could understand some of these challenging experiences women were having, you could then put in place some things to change that. And so I ended up doing kind of moonlighting for about 18 months, working as an advisor 
uh, to the chief of the New Zealand Army and his leadership team, sharing the findings and then more importantly, kind of going through the recommendations. But that kind of happened. But what I realized is that that really changed the course of what I was then going to do with my life. So I became really passionate about how can we improve the workplace and give everyone a better experience and do it in a way that is still good for the organization. So when I worked with the chief, it was never about, hey, make these things better for women at the expense of men or at the expense of the mission, like not at all. It was, how can you do these things that will make it better for women? And like shock horror, that's going to be good for the men and for the mission as well. And so that kind of became my passion, which I'll just wrap the last bit up really quickly. I did more research about working parents. I've got a whole lot of passion about that. And about just over a year ago, I was on maternity leave second time round. So I've got a, at the moment, a five-year-old and two-year-old. And so last year I had a one-year-old on maternity leave from this consulting job. And I realized I'm so passionate about changing the way we do work in the world. I think I'm going to have to make it my business. So that's what I now do. I have a business as a speaker and as a consultant sort of in the space of how we do things better in the workplace. So, I know some American women who've gotten their PhD and in their research thesis, they've not really on purpose, they've ended up focusing on women veterans. And then they like do this research and they talk about like themes and it doesn't matter if it's enlisted officer, what branch it is, the themes, or like if they had kids or if they only stayed for five years, there's like these themes that women experience across the board and so it was interesting to hear you say the same thing I mean the one person I know Dr. Destiny Priet she did hers on transition and she found like overarching themes that women struggled with when they left the military and I was surprised by her research that it wasn't just like the things moms struggled with were the same thing as like single women or married women without kids like there was still like a resonating theme which is really interesting so it was I think it's fascinating that that research like changed your life and led to what you're doing today. And it's it's just really cool. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and you talked about changing how people view work. And I know what you're talking about. And I think it's really fascinating and a really good idea. So can you talk a little bit about like what you want to change and how you came to your conclusions that you're so passionate about today? Yeah, sure. And um, again, this is a little bit of detail in the answer, but I'll, I'll try and keep it um, relatively brief. So after I did that journey of serving in the military, researching about the military, and then advising to the military, I got asked to speak at a few different events about, about that journey. And the people organizing the, these events asked me if I could focus on the theme that would be most relevant beyond the military. So some of the themes that came up in my research not a surprise, probably Amanda, you know, sexual harm did come up as a recurring theme, gender discrimination, uh, not always valuing women's leadership approaches, uh, you know, even basic things like not always having uniforms and equipment for women. They were kind of some of the themes. And then there was one theme that was all around uh, the logistical challenges of being a parent. And so what I always said to these event organizers is actually all of those themes are relevant beyond the military. This doesn't just happen in a vacuum in the military, but I focused on the Pacific uh, challenge around logistical challenges being apparent. So that's kind of what I talked about at a few talks. So we're talking kind of two years ago now. And I ended up totally accidentally, Amanda, all these parents, and they were mostly mums, a few dads, but mostly mums, 
started reaching out to me wanting to tell me about their experience of being a working parent. And when I kept hearing the same stories over and over, I kind of couldn't help myself sort of putting my research hat on. And I realized I ended up having conversations with more than 500 parents, which is a pretty big, you know, it was kind of bigger than my PhD in some ways. And these were parents from across a wide variety of sectors, industries, professions, uh, mostly New Zealand, but also I've had conversations with people in Australia, the UK, Canada, Singapore, and the US, and really didn't find many differences between the countries. And I'm always kind of upfront, this was not the same level of academic rigor as my PhD, but there was something in it that I kept hearing the same stories. And what I realized is that every parent basically fitted into one of three categories. And the first was that they kind of couldn't make work work. And so they left the workforce. And when I say work, I'm meaning paid work because, of course, we do a lot of unpaid work as well. But that was kind of the first. They almost got kind of forced out of the workforce because it was just too tough to juggle kids and work. The second one is that they worked full time, which meant their kids were in full time childcare and they basically missed their children. And that wasn't particularly cool. And then the third one was that they would, and this sort of leads into this thing that I'm so darn passionate about now, is that they would work or have some kind of a part-time arrangement so they'd work less hours so that they could spend more time with their kids. But what ultimately ended up happening is that they got a pay cut because, you know, less hours, less pay, but their outputs didn't change. They kept doing the same workload. They just became really efficient and did it in less hours. And these parents all talked about how lucky they felt. You know, it'd be like, oh, I'm so, I'm so privileged that I'm allowed to work part-time. And when I kept hearing this over and over, I became really, really angry. I was like, there's nothing lucky about getting a pay cut to do the same job. And so now we're talking sort of a year ago, last year on maternity leave, kind of marinating in this thinking, all of this is, you know, none of these outcomes are good. I'm living this at that point. I've got a one-year-old and a four-year-old. This is my future. I don't want to be forced out of the workforce. I don't want to work all these hours and miss my kids, but I also don't want to take a pay cut to do the same workload. And so I started thinking, well, why do we do it this way? And maybe we can do things differently. And so I started researching about, you know, why do we do work kind of this nine to five construct and realized that it was designed, you know, a hundred years ago when the workforce was comprised of men. And so every kind of household had a dedicated worker and a dedicated caregiver. But that's just, that's just not the case today. You know, there's very few households that have that. It's mostly you know, both parents are in the workforce or potentially it's, you know, single parent households. And so I started thinking, well, maybe we can do it differently. And hence started this kind of movement that I'm trying to push, which is hashtag work school hours. And I did a, a TED talk about it. So the TED talk video is actually due out hopefully in the next month. And it's all about this idea. So it's kind of, I've given you like the five minute version, but it's a more detail around this work school hours. And it's all around looking at how can we do more to better align the schedules of adults and children, do this for everybody. So it's not just, you know, give it to parents and shaft everybody else. It's how do you normalize this idea? And you focus on the outputs that you want people to deliver, being, you know, what it is they're doing, not the number of hours they do. And you focus on giving them flexibility and autonomy to achieve those outputs kind of in and around their life. So that's sort of the, the next piece of my journey, which is, is really my passion yeah, and this is supposed to go out in in February, so hopefully I can put the link to the TED Talk in 
the show notes so that people can go listen to it if they want to learn more. And it was interesting listening to you talk because my sister recently switched jobs and the company wants her to get so many referrals for her work every month. And so she gets some and then she gets more than that. And they're like, you don't need to work anymore. And she's like, but I haven't worked by 40 hours. And they're like, we don't care. We just wanted you to get these referrals. We don't care if it takes you five. And she's like, but it it's making her want to work harder. But it also like gives her the flexibility of like, if she wants to take a half day, they don't care. She just has to have her phone um, and answer calls. And she doesn't have to take time off because she already got her work done and she doesn't have kids, but you know, she loves to be able to travel and to do things, but she's still in the mindset. She'll be like, they don't care if I work. And I'm like, that's because they're only worried about this referral thing that you're telling me about. Like you got the ones they wanted and they're like, you're good. (laughs) And she's like, no, I'm not. I have to keep working. And so it's kind of funny the way that Even her mindset, even though the company that she works for is like very flexible, but she came from a very rigid environment where they were like, keep pushing, keep pushing, and you can never do enough. And so she loves her job now because she has that flexibility and that support and she doesn't feel the like pressure to work really hard, but then she wants to work hard because she knows that they support her. So it it is like a win-win situation. Amanda, I mean, that's such a cool example. And I love that that's actually the organization that's leading that. Because the bit where I get, so this kind of started where, you know, I was like, I did this PhD where women were having challenges. And then I went a step further and realized that parents were having challenges. And so that kind of started from the, almost like the whinge, this is how it's tough, but that's not going to change the world having a whinge about it. You've got to find out how this is going to work practically. And so when I got so excited is when I realized that, this is actually commercially smart. If organizations do this, focus on outputs, their staff will be way more efficient. They will have better well-being because they can spend more time for personal stuff, which could be kids, but you know, it could actually be nothing to do with children. People then feel kind of more empowered. And then, you know, we're in this talent shortage at the moment. What's a way for a firm to have a competitive advantage to attract and retain great talent? is say, we'll actually offer, you know, different work circumstances. All we care about is that you do your work. I don't care when you do it, where you do it, how you do it, get it done to a great standard. And that's actually what we're paying you for. Not, did you do your eight hours today? Which is just not actually a correlation with how much value you contribute to the firm. But we often think that those two things are the same. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that the world is like slowly switching to that but I feel like it's a very slow switch and like definitely like big organizations are like the military are a little bit (laughs) COVID actually really helped because it allowed uh, American military members to have the opportunity to do remote work and so my husband we just moved to California from the east coast and he couldn't work from home at that job but here he has the flexibility to work from home which means that like he can help sometimes with like getting the kids from school or if I go on a business trip he doesn't have to take time off just to be able to do drop off and pick up he can work from home and still meet the requirements because he's getting his work done but he has that flexibility and it's really nice because he did not have that before and when we were out here before they were like you can't telework it's not allowed and I was like why (laughs) and so yeah so now he has the flexibility to go to work or to be at home 
and it's amazing because it's the military and they're changing, which I never thought they would change. It's um that's the uh, you know I mean COVID it was horrible. I'm not you know certainly not wanting to be you know offensive in that you know COVID was a tough thing for the planet, but. I like to always sort of see the silver linings and I really think that that is one of them is that it's really opened up organizations eyes to the fact that doing work is not just equated to are you at the premise between these hours and so when people can prove like your husband's done he can get his stuff done and you know his quality of life must have hugely improved being able to do those drop-offs and for the kids and not having to worry about it or feel like he's being, I don't know, kind of naughty or not contributing. It's yeah, I think I think we've got an awesome opportunity to really harness this change and and really take this forward at an accelerated pace. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think it's really exciting the work that you're doing and I I love that we got to connect and talk about this. And I know when, before we talked, you mentioned Afghanistan and how you saw with the evacuation with that compressed time schedule. You said it was a good case study. So let's talk about that before we wrap up the interview. Yeah, sure. So um, as I mentioned uh, earlier in the podcast, I served in Afghanistan. And in my team, I had five Kiwi soldiers and I also had 15 locals. And we were a team. It wasn't kind of, you know, us Kiwis and you know the locals. It was, you know, we are a team of engineers. And so August 2021, as, you know, so many veterans saw with, great sadness the Taliban took over in Afghanistan and yeah I mean I think anyone who served there right Amanda it was just devastating right and anyway one of the guys oh and sorry and as you know of course anyone who had kind of worked for a foreign government was then at risk because of doing that they were considered traitors or whatever the right word is and one of the guys who had been in my team uh, reached out to me uh, begging me to help and I said to us, I have absolutely no idea how to do that. But yeah, of course, I will do anything that I can. And so our prime minister, um, and I think your government did something similar. I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but our prime minister stood up uh, on a media conference and said, yes, you know, our country acknowledges the risk to life of these people because of the fact that they worked for us. And therefore, we're going to bring them to New Zealand. So that was great. Uh, they sent in some New Zealand Defence Force aircraft who did successfully evacuate some New Zealand citizens and permanent residents, which was which was wonderful. But then the airport was bombed and the New Zealand evacuation flights were cut short. And what that unfortunately meant is that not, not one of these people that had worked for the New Zealand Defence Force got out. And what started with me just trying to help one guy in a matter of days, kind of ballooned into the most complex, outrageously challenging, emotionally draining thing I've ever been involved in in my life. And I ended up finding myself advocating for almost all of the people that had worked for the New Zealand Defence Force. So there's about 50. So I, there were 15 that I knew from my team, but there were others who did other jobs at the Kiwi bases. And then when you add in their wives and their children, and they have a lot of children, it was quite a few hundred people. And so the first thing was, okay, well, you know, the evacuation by a defense force has been cut short because of the bombing, but kind of what's plan B. And so I knew that all of these people needed their correct uh, New Zealand visa. And so we did, uh, myself and a few interpreter friends, went through this kind of tedious process, Amanda, of for almost a month, I was working till two, three in the morning, night after night, 
putting together all the documentation for every single one of these several hundred people to get them their New Zealand visa. And good thing is after a month we achieved that, but that kind of still meant nothing because they were all still in danger in Afghanistan. And I found myself in this pretty desperate position. I, you know, I wasn't actually responsible for these people, but I felt like I was. And I had lost a lot of weight in that month. I was barely eating and sleeping. I was still breastfeeding my baby at that point. And I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know how the heck to actually help these people. And I had this kind of magical week where three guys reached out to me. One of their names is Chris Parsons. Another is Martin Dransfield. And these three guys had seen me in the media because I put, I went to, went to the media about um, advocating for these families. And we ended up forming this team and long story, there's a lot more detail, but long story short, um, over the period of almost a year, it was about 10 months, we worked together as a team and we collaborated with the New Zealand government plus a whole lot of other people beyond us. And slowly but surely over all that period of time, uh, every single person that we got a visa for, which was 563, they are all now safely in New Zealand. Now, the reason I share that is not to say, you know, look at me, I did this nice thing, but I realized that it was kind of a case study for these things I believe about work. So I'm, I talk about work school hours. You know, we were not working school hours. We were working through the middle of the night. So that's, I'm not trying to say that's how life should be. But what was kind of cool about this is it demonstrated what you can achieve when you just focus on outputs. So as a team of volunteers, we never said, right team, these will be the hours that we work. And this will be the office that we go to. Our entire operation was done remotely. So the four of us have never been in the same room together. We, I have now met everybody, but we did most of this via um, you know, Zoom, phone calls, emails, and we did it in and around our life. So we all had our own jobs. We all had children. And so we just did these tasks in and around that. And so again, I, I'm really emphasizing the fact that the hours we were doing is not what I'm kind of advocating for with work school hours, but it just demonstrates when you just focus on the outputs that you've agreed to each other that you'll do and you provide flexibility for people to do them in and around their lives and you even consider the fact that remote working is actually really is of value, I think it shows that you can achieve some pretty complex stuff via those principles. So that's, I hope that kind of makes sense of, as to why I think this is a good case study. Yeah, it's really true. I think that when you're passionate about something you find you can do so much in like a five minute window and I people are like how do you do all the things you do it's like well I was really passionate about creating a podcast and I was you know and COVID happened and my kids were home and I still had to keep the podcast going so I had to like readjust everything and condense timelines and so now I have all these processes and systems in place to like cut hours out of what you know it used to take me to do now it only takes me a handful of hours instead of a bunch of hours and when you have a limited amount of time you find a way to make it work because you kind of have to I love that you know the saying um if you want something done ask a busy person and I think it's true right like if you're busy and and often mums are kind of I'm not saying that other people can't but often mums are some of the best multitaskers and you know, getting their stuff done in a shorter period of time because they they have to. I think that's cool that you yeah, came up with processes to improve efficiencies. Yeah. 
Well, I really love this conversation. I love learning a little bit more about different countries and their militaries and just your overall experience. And hopefully we can get that TED Talk link because that would be really awesome to have in the show notes. And I always end my interviews with what advice would you give to a young woman who's considering joining the military? Oh, yes. So I think, uh, and I didn't really talk about it today, but is be yourself. So I think it's really easy to join the military and think that you're supposed to be a certain mold, which often may not necessarily be feminine. So I would say to any young girl, no matter who you are, what type of what type of woman you are, is be be yourself. That is your biggest superpower. You will be the best you can in the military if you be yourself. I love that. Thank you so much for working with me on Time Zone so that we could get this interview in. I really loved connecting with you, and maybe one day we'll get to meet in person. Amanda, I would love that. And I just wanted to ask as well, if you put in the show notes the TED Talk, I'd love it if you included, if anyone's interested, my website, which is my full name, ellenjoannelson.com. I've got a whole lot more information there about work school hours and about you know proving different ways of working. So if you want more information, it's on that website. Yeah, I'll definitely put that in the show notes as well so that people can connect with you there. And I think I'm connected with you on LinkedIn. That's how we got connected. So um, I'll put that so that people can connect with you as well. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Amanda. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks so much for listening to this week's interview. I'm really thankful that you took the time to listen to this episode. And I wanted to tell you about two resources that may help you in your journey of military service. And so the first is my new book, A Girl's Guide to Military Service, which is available at the link in the show notes on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. You can go check it out. It's A Girl's Guide to Military Service. It's meant to help you answer all your questions about military life and give you a firm foundation for the start of your career. And if you're looking for mentorship or want to be a mentor, please check out the Women of the Military Mentorship Program, which is also linked to in the show notes. You can sign up to be a mentee or a mentor. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week.